Greetings and welcome to Broken Boxes Podcast. This very special episode marked our first ever conversation in front of a live studio audience. Recurring host Chinupa Hanskaluber was joined by Matika Wilbur and Andrea Carlson on October 28, 2023, as part of the University of Michigan Museum of Arts Memory and Monuments program. The artists drew from a hat of pre-considered topics to speak to and expand upon, including ancestral trade routes or sharing knowledge within a cultural continuum, such as how culture, language, and goods traveled pre-contact, indigenous memory in relation to the American myth, recognition of indigenous complexity, indigenous futures, including shared histories, and institutional critique or a generative airing of problematic power structures impact on native peoples. Broken Boxes would like to thank UMA staff and curators and Monument Lab for being present for this generative and complex conversation to take place. We would especially like to thank the students of the Native American Student Association at the University of Michigan who welcomed Broken Boxes and the artists and helped make this live audience recording a wonderful experience. I'm gonna give introductions for Matika and Andrea here, and then we will jump right into the live conversation. Matika Wilbur, who is Swinomish and Tulalip, is one of the nation's leading photographers based in the Pacific Northwest. She earned her BFA from Brooks Institute of Photography where she double majored in advertising and digital imaging. Her most recent endeavor, Project 562, has brought Matika to over 300 tribal nations dispersed throughout 40 U.S. states, where she has taken thousands of portraits and collected hundreds of contemporary narratives from the breadth of Indian country, all in the pursuit of one goal, to change the way we see Native America. Andrea Carlson is a visual artist who maintains a studio practice in northern Minnesota. Carlson works primarily on paper, creating painted and drawn surfaces with many mediums. Her work addresses land and institutional spaces, decolonization narratives, and assimilation metaphors in film. Her work has been acquired by institutions such as the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Walker Art Center, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, the Denver Art Museum, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and the National Gallery of Canada. Carlson was a 2008 McKnight Fellow, the recipient of a 2017 Joan Mitchell Foundation Painters and Sculptors Award, a 2021 Chicago Ardadia Award, and a 2022 United States Artist Fellowship Award. Carlson is a co-founder of the Center for Native Futures in Chicago. Thank you all. Uh, I'm always asking, who are you and why have you come? Um, uh, today, we have the honor of talking with both of you. I'm Chinupahanska Luger. I'm Awahe, Dripping Earth Clan from the Mandan Hidasa Rikara tribes. Um, I am also Lakota and other things I'm almost certain of. Uh, in this context, I am the interviewer, uh, <laughs> which is a position that I, I gladly have taken uh, for Ginger Zanel. 
my, my partner in crime and my boss in this instance. She is the producer of this project, and she's also the director of my uh, studio. And so I thought this is a way to reciprocate anything that I can, uh, any way I can help her on her projects. And so I've been doing interviews lately, and uh, from that position, I sit here in front of everybody doing our first live podcast. And I would love to extend an opportunity to introduce yourselves to our audience here and out there. Me first. Matika Sitstat, Stochobs, Chath, Jalchatut Leila, Walter Swinamish, Tigwitid CIS, Nasjalajad CIS. Good afternoon, relatives. Uh, my name is Matika Wilbur. Uh, my Indian name is Satsaik. It means she who teaches. I'm from the Swinomish and Tulalip tribes in Washington State. And I'm grateful to be here with all of you. Thanks for having me. Bonjour, Nindanawe, Maganiduk, Andrew Carlson, Indigenous Cause. Jawa Gwineyashi Kindago, Mekanak Nindo Dame, Gichi Onigaming, Ninda Nindish Gonagan. My name is Andrea Carlson. Um, Eternal Sun Woman is my Ojibwe name of Turtle Clan, and I belong to Grand Portage Ojibwe people. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, <laughs> I am very excited to be sitting next to you too and having this conversation. Um, we had sent ahead a list of potential topics. Those potential topics we have stripped into these little shapes. I wanted to read these topics aloud first because there is no way in the time allotted for us to engage with all of these topics. But I thought it would be really important to understand what you are not getting. <laughs> uh, so with that being said, the first, we'll go in a round robin style. I'll read one, you read one, you read one, and we'll pop them into this hat here and uh, we'll draw them at random, and that'll be the source of our conversation. Uh, feels strange and equitable and impossible, and uh, <laughs> I like chance being a part of that. So the first one I have here in my paper is indigenous memory in, the relation, in relation to the American myth. <laughs> mm. Land back in relation to customary practices and modern ecology and what intersections there are between tribes and regions. Ooh. <laughs> Ancestral trade routes, sharing knowledge within a cultural continuum, such as how culture, language, and goods traveled pre-contact. Community involvement, how each of us are working within and for our communities. <laughs> oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> uh, cultural maintenance, archiving and sustaining on our terms in our voices. Mm -hmm. Cultural narrative, or counter narrative, sorry, meaning behind the popular myths or what those even are. Okay. Recognition of indigenous complexity. Indigenous futures, shared histories, the future in general. <laughs> Representation. Who gets to tell our stories? How are stories presented outside of our communities? And the challenges of that. Multi-tribal protocols confronting Native American umbrella term. Oh. I guess it was the Native American umbrella term. I, I dropped <laughs> the, an article. The. <laughs> the, 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 the term. <laughs> I'm going to barely fold this one because it might be a really good one. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to lay it across the I know, I know. And uh, <laughs> choose. Uh, institutional critique. 
a generative airing of problematic power structures and the impact on native people. <laughs> this is only an hour show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we'll be here for the next eight hours. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. Um, I think before we, or actually, please select one first. Don't read it yet. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, <laughs> is it the one? Damn it. Uh, I just wanted to first also say, Thank you to everybody who's here today. I think it's really important to acknowledge those who've uh, entered into the space and are gonna be hearing. Uh, keep your ears open, remember some of those questions. There is gonna be a moment to have a Q&A at the end. So if we miss something that you desperately wanted to hear, um, there will be a mic on the side. Mm -hmm. And from there, Matika, would you? Ancestral trade routes, sharing knowledge within a cultural continuum, such as how culture, language, and goods traveled pre-contact. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Next. <laughs> I, I, I think the opportunity to pass is also out. <laughs> uh, we wrote a lot of these questions down, uh, uh, going back and forth, having some ideas. I sent them out to you all, and we were like, OK, yeah, let's dive in there. But I think also the opportunity to skip exists, and if you feel more- You are not allowed to skip the first question. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, but I have presented that as an option which I did not present prior to our conversation. Um, I like the questions, I like all of them, so. Uh, so answer. Do you, do you want? <laughs> why why hey. stall? There are no answers here. I got only... it, I'm ready. I'm oh, ready. you're already I ready. I can talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh. All right. Okay, so I'm, uh, I'm from the Swinomish and Tulalip peoples, where the Mish peoples, I talked about this a little last night. Uh, the Mish people, Mish means the people of, so Swinomish mm. is the people of the tide. Uh, our belief system is that, you know, when the tide is out, the table is set. And so everything that we do related to who we are is in relationship to the Coast Salish Sea, the salmon. Mm. Um, in our creation stories, we come from the salmon. And our ancestral trade routes are deeply connected to the fact that we're longhouse people, we're potlatch people. And you know, we had a very strong economic system in the Pacific Northwest prior to contact because we were potlatch people. In fact, the most, um, like the most noble thing one could do is host a potlatch. And our, if you come to our, to our places, we wear big cedar hats. And on top of our cedar hats, if you hosted a potlatch, you could put a ring on top of your hat. And you know, like the people that were the wealthiest in the community had the most rings on top of their hat, which is to say that when you have a potlatch, you completely impoverish yourself. You give away all of your goods. You're, you give away your en entire food store for the winter time, all of your canoes, you know, like all of your wool. We used to have woolly dogs Whoa. in the Pacific Northwest, dogs that we would collect wool from, and our traditional regalia is made out of wool. Oh, no way. Yeah. And so, you know, that is to say that we had um, an economic system that had a constant redistribution of wealth that was rooted in kinship systems between communities. And you know, those trade routes, you know, going tribe to tribe, spending long periods of times at potlatches where all the good things happened, right? Like the naming ceremonies and the birthing ceremonies and the coming of age ceremonies. Um, you know, and it wasn't until post-contact that that was disrupted and made illegal, right? Mm -hmm. And so, 
back to the question, <laughs> you know, like what about these ancestral trade routes um, and how do we get back to sharing in a cultural continuum? I think, you know, we're already doing that, of course, yeah. but, you know, most of our longhouses were burned um, at the turn of the century, right after the Indian Allotment Act, when they wanted all of our people to move into um, our 40 acres and become farmers, our people were like, we don't want to be farmers, we are fishermen, Yeah, you know? Uh, and so they came and they set our longhouses on fire. And great big longhouses like Old Man House and Suquamish burned down. And when that happened, people got in their canoes, they took off for the islands, you know? and. Um, and that's when it was made illegal for Native people to be on the water. So the collapse of our economic system of our ancestral trade routes was deeply rooted to colonization and yeah. systematically destroyed. And now, in the last 50 years, we've been syst systematically rebuilding those systems, you know, so rebuilding our longhouses. However, we haven't gotten back to a place of trade, right? Like, you used to, you, there used to be people that would only harvest certain types of sockeye and would only harvest certain types of crab and certain types of abalone so that there was never over-harvesting and we would always trade in the potlatching system, but we haven't returned to that, you know, ancestral trading system yet, which, in which case we would be more, we would have more stability if we did, so... Of course, that is a goal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I love that you're, you're like, we're the Mish people. I'm the Nish people. I'm a Nishinaabe, so it's <laughs> cool. So where I recently moved to back home, um, Grand Marais, Grand Portage area in northern Minnesota, Grand Portage um, is, the, the portage is where, you know, the bodies of water aren't, um, aren't hooked up. You have to go above the falls. So you have Lake Superior, and then there's the Pigeon River, which is right on the US-Canadian border. And the, the Grand Portage is actually a six, eight-mile hike where people had to just carry their canoes up above the falls and plant their canoes back in to the river in order to, to carry out trade. Um, Grand Portage is also like this huge fort for like the, the um, Northwest Company, for a lot of the Hudson Bay Company, you know, they, they kind of merged at that spot. So as far as trade goes, it's not ancient or pre-contact, very contact, you know, when it comes to like the, the fur trade, which was, you know, really informative on that history was very, very much so like part of a survival story for Anishinaabe people in northern Minnesota. But it's all, it's all on the backs of, of pre-invasion um, uh, trade routes. I always think of like, like Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Winnipeg. That's an old trade route, and it's also like the vaudeville circuit. Like huh. all of those became the highways. The the trade routes became the highways that we still use today. Mm -hmm. I think that we should bring back like art exchanges through these cities, um, uh, to you know honor the old trade routes, but also like this as far as being like a Midwest girl, that's. You know, the, it seems like there's so much happening on the coasts when it comes to art in the major cities. And it's like, we have this, this ancient trade route that I think it would be really cool to like bring it back in, in terms of, of art, even if it's just symbolic. Yeah. It has that mm -hmm. international side. But also, like, I was thinking about this question in terms of like a conversation that I read when I was writing a really short um, entry for Jean-Claude to see Smith's show at the Whitney. She wanted me to write on um, her trade canoe series mm -hmm. uh, 
because she knew, oh, you're from Grand Portage, the trade canoe, it's kind of a big deal for you, so you can tackle this. And I read an article or an interview that she had given where she was talking about um, all of these old trade routes that were kind of recovered because they were lined in fat. Everything had grown over, but since Native people and her community had used torches that were lit fat, mm. that it actually seeped into the ground, and though everything grow was growing over those spots, you could still find where the trails were because the fat had seeped into the soil and, and wouldn't let other things grow. Like it, huh. it almost poisoned. So like this, these, these trade routes are, are kind of like semi-permanent. Mm. Um, I think that's really interesting. Like I don't like the word pre-contact. I like pre-invasion because contact <laughs> seems Gentle. Like, gentle. Just nice, nice little contact. Yeah, yeah, like just, just, just contact is what happened. No war. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like, like might just say pre-death, like, <laughs> but, you know, pre-genocide. Pre-apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, pre-apocalypse trade routes were uh, phenomenal. Um, but you brought up something that I think is really fascinating in that, uh, which is these roads. You know, and, and the roads that we navigate presently and the routes that we utilize presently are our old routes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I am Nueta, Sanish, uh, and Arikara. When you're, the reservation I'm from is three affiliated tribes, and I swear anybody from that reservation kind of more closely uh, uh, connects to two of the three, even though for sure we're all three of them. Um, so I grew up with like Mandan and Hidatsa stories, and there are these stories of us. We're river people. The Missouri River is a major route for trade and movement, and, um, and we're like a pretty sedentary tribe in a landscape of nomadic tribes moving around. And so it was our trade that actually was a huge part of our survival mm -hmm. pre-apocalypse, you know? <laughs> um, knowing what other people needed made us uh, necessary for, for everybody. And we have stories, are the, there's like stories of Hidatsa runners. Like we have a word for monkey, itzhehe. Uh, <laughs> and like we're way up Northern Plains, you know? It's like, how did you come up with a, a name for a monkey? And it's because we had seen them, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's literally little, it's like little hairy person. There's a, there's a story of us moving all the way, like running all the way into um, South America and meeting all of these different tribes along the way. Like we had snake eaters. There were names for all of these different tribes that we had met along the way. And then, and then landscapes as well, deserts and things. And then they got to this forest and the first people they met was Itzahehe and they were like, uh, they didn't want to trade with us. <laughs> they kept laughing at us. Like the story says they would stand in the trees and laugh at us. And we were like, that's enough. We don't need, any, we don't need any of this business. <laughs> um, so disrespectful. <laughs> I know. What would have happened if <laughs> we didn't have anything they needed? And we were like, okay, that's, that's far enough. Um, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do we want to move into another one, or yeah. do you think there's more to be said about that? Once again, we could have a whole podcast about it, but I think let's, let's, let's move, move along. Let's move on, yeah. Andrea? Oh, my God. Oh, this one's really crumpled. That's my work. <laughs> Recognition of indigenous complexity, indigenous futures, shared histories, and futures. 
Huh. Just everything. Yeah, just everything. Let's just, just talk about everything. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> Go first. <laughs> We're different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. The option to pass is always exists. <laughs> that, that is a huge question. Any thoughts around, um, I think as we are developing these new futures, and, and even to go back to the previous question, like around trade and, and exchange, our complexity and our diversity it was also the source of our, of our exchanges, right? Um, we definitely traded and gathered, uh, we traded in shells, you all gathered, like <laughs> for sure, you know? Um, and I know those exchanges had gone both ways. Um, we have like copper work from where I'm from, or at least access to um, a material that was copper rich, uh, and that's totally from this region. Yep. So is there, is there any um, opportunity to describe the complexity of, of the indigenous present as a way to kind of better describe our experiences in, in the United States, in the world, on the globe? I'm really interested in in hearing your thoughts about it in your work. I think both, you know, you specifically. <laughs> I'm making it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you do a lot of work in indigenous futurism, um, you, you know, with your imagining of these like new figures and. Yeah. Well, and I would also say that those they are, they're not an actual culture that exists. Right. You know, and and I think the development of indigenous futures or or that concept is totally limited by the definitions that we have to inhabit, which is this notion of future, you know? Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know if the culture that I'm representing is Mandan, Hidatsa, Arikara, Lakota. I don't know if it's any of those because I'm imagining it in a, in a space where we once again are just calling ourselves the human beings of a place, you know? And so what place do they inhabit and how do the multitudes of cultures that we experience inform them in that space? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a little bit of a form of resistance to um, the sedentary models of, of tribes being uh, removed from their humanity and described simply as how they describe themselves, but in a different language, you know? And the way we had constantly introduced ourselves to a population when they asked, who are you? It's like, we're the human beings. Like, what do you, what do you mean? You know, we're the human beings of the water. We're the human beings of the, of the desert, of this spring, under, the, under the, these trees, or something along right. those lines. Like, yeah, land-based identities, right. Right, right. And, and the language is trying to describe that to them, but rather than understanding the depth of that description, it's reduced to a noun, you know? Right. And so no longer it's their relational uh, identity. But rather, um, uh, if you are Lakota, you know, you are just that. You know, like that's what you are. That's who you are. Mm. Um, um, and it's outside of that context. So the futures that I'm imagining are futures that are still flexible, still in flux, you know, and still in transition. And not a monolith. Like whatever I'm presenting is not the end or the final uh, extension of it, mm. you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of conversation about being a Native artist and working in a traditional medium, 
and that that medium should, in order for it to be traditional, it should be something that our ancestors did pre-apocalypse, and that, <laughs> and that for us to um, imagine futures, it should be rooted in some ways in, in, in that practice. And you know, photography, you know, I'm a photographer, is not a traditional pre-apocalypse medium. Right. However, our people have always been storytellers. Right. right? And, I, and so I, I always, I go back to the story that my auntie tells about using writ dye when we, when we, um, mm. when we dye cedar. You know, and, and sometimes curators will say things to her like, well, that's not traditional, right? Because mm -hmm. you didn't like, go out and pick berries and dye your cedar. But my auntie, is, she's really loud and kind of rugged. And she says things like, she goes, you think that they wouldn't use the dye <laughs> if they were here today? You know, <laughs> they would use the dye, you know? <laughs> of course they would. Yeah. You know, um, and so like, I think access to technology and modernization does not, make us like devoid of being traditional people and is also not mutually exclusive um, with the way that we imagine futures. Right. And so we talk about it a lot on our podcast. We talk about what does it mean to imagine and otherwise. Um, you know, and so when I think about indigenous futurism, I think about what does it mean for me to imagine and otherwise as an artist. And sometimes, you know, because I'm I'm a traveler, that's that's how I that's how I spark my imagination, right? And it's and for me, seeing is very much believing. Mm. And because I grew up in a very um, in a very like what one might consider like a very poor community in terms of like Western status, you know, of course we have a lot of culture in my community, but. I can imagine, and otherwise, until traveling to other tribal communities and saying, "Oh wow, look at how they've done these things," hmm. you know. And so, for me, um, imagining and otherwise also means having access to um, other places, so that I can, so that I can, um, so that I can begin to build my imagination because I, it's hard to start from scratch or to start from a deficit. So that's, I think, that's why I really like your work because. I think it pushes back against all those narratives in many ways, right? And um, and I could talk at length about this project, about like things that I'm doing in the future. Uh, but you know, much of my work has been about narrative correction work. You know, like the the book that I just published is about narrative correction work because we've we've been stereotyped and misrepresented and. Um, and for me, it, it's not work that really advances the, the scholarship like imagining and otherwise in a future because it's really just spending so much time trying to um, push back against events against the American historical amnesia. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think true freedom as an artist would be spending my time imagining and otherwise not having to push back against whiteness all the time. You know, if I had the freedom to make whatever I wanted at all times because I didn't live in a world where I had to combat the injustice, then maybe I could spend more time in futurism. And that's to me like my great goal as a collaborator and as an artist is to like get to a place where I can work with other artists that are native that can help the scholarship advance. You know, when I published my book, every single person at every turn, you know, the publisher, the editor, the copy editor, my agent, my publicist, you know, like every single person was white. And um, and really well-meaning white people, but also people that um, hadn't spent uh, you know two decades 
thinking about indigeneity like right. I had. Right. And so instead of me being able to have a conversation that with my editor in a way when I'm writing whatever subject I'm writing about, that could maybe potentially advance the scholarship, challenge the scholarship, and she could say, well, actually, have you read these six things? This might, it might actually help me be a better thinker, right? She, I had to just explain what I was thinking, and I think that really set back the scholarship. Yeah. So for me, you know, the idea of um, futurism also includes us having the freedom to collaborate with one another and be in power-holding positions mm -hmm. where we can help each other to advance. Because so often, I feel, um, I feel like I'm starving mm. for, uh, to be nurtured and pushed beyond my boundaries of my own imagination. And I feel like I need to be hanging out with people like you more. Because <laughs> you come over to do, <laughs> you know, so that I might actually do that. <laughs> Sorry, you speak. What was the question? You're holding it. <laughs> One of the things I think is very fascinating about the, the um, conversation around indigenous futurism and um, futurisms is that we always talk about it in terms of the imagine, imagination. Um, you know, I always think of you know, that quote of like the greatest tragedy that can befall us is to go unimagined and that we're, we, for survival, there is this almost like, like kind of like pre-figuring out what could happen, what are the possibilities, are there parameters, can we, you know, take those away, and that 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 has, we can imagine more agency in that space than what we're served when we look at history. We feel, you know, you know, minimized and reduced, but in the future we feel maybe expanded or that there's place of a place of joy in in the imaginary. But when it comes to like time, you know, when it comes to like future as opposed to past. We, you know, we, we mess it up. Like the native folks, I think, mess it up a little bit. We, mm. um, we, we've, we've never severed, you know, that continuity with, with our pasts. You know, it's, it's something that it's a narrative that sometimes is is brought to us. Like, oh, we lost our language, and this, and it's like, well, if you if you do lose a teaching, if you lose a word in your language, one of the things that I've learned from 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 elders and my teachers is that we we don't have like a rule book like a bible we have ceremonies where we can get it back yeah. mm -hmm. we can go out fasting and then you can have a vision and it's like got a new teaching um, <laughs> or you can observe nature and see these relationships and it may have been a lost teaching that we had known at one time but we can get it back mm -hmm. and so i think that there's something that's you know, like part of the colonization process is that it's always kind of lamenting our loss. And it's like, yeah, yeah. so maybe to not perpetuate that colonization is that, that we have the power, we have the tools in order to dream back those mm -hmm. teachings, in order to dream back those cultural pieces. So I think that's also for me how, how, how I think of, of how indigenous futurism could work. I don't think it's just sci-fi. There's some people that want, kind of want to make indigenous futurisms like sci-fi. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I resist that because I think that there's just more, more people that can um, engage with a, a more general understanding of what that could be. Right. Well, and we're also combating the imagination, right? I mean, if we know, we know that most native youth 
like 82% of Native youth, when asked the question of whether or not they believe they're going to live beyond the age of 25, the answer is no. Mm -hmm. And so what, what we're also combating in, in our, with our young folks is trying to make them believe that you are going to be a grandparent. Yeah. You know? I don't um, know that. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, you know, like imagining an indigenous future also means believing within our own bodies and in our, within our own selves that you are going, I'm going to live a long life. And I think I believed that when I was young. That's why I partied so hard. <laughs> I will survive this. <laughs> what are the odds? That I, <laughs> I don't think that it's going to work out, you know? <laughs> but, but that's also because so many people around me were dying. Yeah. You know, and it's like I started high school with 30, 39 Native students, and three of us graduated. And right. like, all, like 20 of us, by the time we made it to high school, had already died. And you know, right now there's only two of us still alive that I went to high school with from my res. Wow. And so it's not, it's, it's, we're not making it up. It's not like we just don't have hope. It's because we're going to so many funerals, yeah. right? And so, um, and, and that's just the truth. And so it's also like, I, I also have a really hard time thinking about futurisms, especially on my own res, because I know what I'm up against. Yeah. You know, and it's and so that to me is like sometimes it feels even in, like even sitting here on this stage, it feels like a very entitled position to say like, oh, you know, I'm going to imagine futures. But there's like so much work to be done to even get to a place systemically where we're supporting native lives and native bodies to the point that they can be safe. You know, like the age expectancy on my res is 55. Mm -hmm. You know, so how are you? So let's imagine a future where we have like healthcare. <laughs> you know, like some, let's imagine something beyond IHS. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like th that too. Well, I think that's also bringing up a really important uh, component, which is the. The world I grew up in, we were only represented in a past context. Right. There was no representation through media, through film, through art that inhabited that space of being. Right. In the future, let alone the present. Right. Like the present was hard to reach. So that future space, and this is something that I really appreciate about these efforts, like. Both of your work is embedding these narratives of both present and future in a way that our youth, who in all of these different communities, these numbers are terrifyingly so. Mm -hmm. But with the privilege that we have to be in this position to imagine a future, we're not imagining a future for ourselves. Okay. We are, whether we like it or not, or feel as though we deserve the right to be representing at that scale, we are creating a path or a channel for somebody out there who needs to see ourselves in the present and in the future. Right. And that, that's the psychological effects that allows you to endure the, um, the abrasiveness of our present to imagine ourselves in the future place. You right. know? So I think that's a, that's a component I see in both of your work that's mm -hmm. actually really helpful. Uh, beyond the privileges that we have sitting in a seat like this, you know? Good words, good words. Yeah, uh, good <laughs> okay, my turn. Okay. Let's see, let's see. Ah, indigenous memory in relation to the American myth. Uh, 
How fun. <laughs> Such a fun topic. <laughs> I know. Okay, let, me, let me start by presenting something that I've, I've experienced, and it might be probably the core of this question or why it made it onto the, the, the sheet, is we're in an academic setting presently. Um, most of the indigenous population that we're engaging with right now are in an academic setting. Uh, I recollect going through public school um, this question that I was actually addressed here as my participation uh, of the end of ex exhibition at the University of Michigan, which is, how do we remember? And the question sparked in me, who is we? Mm. You know, who is the we in that remembering? Uh, because I grew up in the United States uh, being forced to memorize uh, a history, but not remember a history. And as an indigenous person, I couldn't help but see what was presented as history, social studies, all of this sort of stuff as myth building. And I'm like, this is a myth. This is not how it shook out, you know? Um, so that made me question everything through my education. You know, I was like, I need a calculator. Let's make sure this math works, you know? Um, let's make sure the science works. Like, let's make sure everything is actually true because what they're presenting as truth is fiction. Um, have, did you guys have a similar experience? And what does that look like in this question? You know, indigenous memory in relation to the American myth. Oh, me? Okay, Andrea, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I had a definite, like, similar experience, like, like through school, where some of the things that I was hearing was not, um, you know, didn't match. I think that um, that when, like, with the last question, talking about indigenous futures and how we're like projecting into the future or like um, those imaginings, there's also, you know, it's it's kind of on the backs of these, you know, these myths that we've also that kind of kind of skew our visions. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I don't know, because I feel like, um, I don't know, that this question is, is, is really hard, because I feel like a lot of what we, what we receive through the history books in school is um, that, it, it, that, that is myth. And then when you try to challenge it in academia, then you're a revisionist. And it's like, are, am I revising the myth? Or was that never actually a thing? Right. Um, and then there's also the, like, even an idea of history is this, like, it's a condensed summary of events that usually follows war and violence and doesn't necessarily, um, there, there's a loss of memory when it comes to things like joy. Um, and or any emotion. To, a real, yeah, actually, yeah, but you kind of have to look at it clinically, or you're taught it clinically. Right. You know, and I feel like there's, there's some really cool artists out there. Like, one of the, the, the things I find fascinating about art as a visual medium is you can take the abstractions of things that are historic or on the page, lots of times numbers, and you can then visualize it. If you see a word like 600, it's 600 on a page, and it doesn't look like... 600 dead horses. When you think of Ryan Federson's 600 horses piece where she went and drew in chalk 600 horses, you know, that were killed by, by the, um, 
by the U.S. Army to hurt the Confederated tribes, to hurt her people. Yeah. They slaughtered all of these wild horses and threw them in the river to poison the river and to hurt her people as an act of war. And it took them like three days to slaughter 600 horses. So she took that history and she drew in chalk 600 horses. So to, to make that real for people, then she had a bunch of chalk where people could, you know, like kind of paint the ponies. They could um, uh, color them in, in in various patterns. And the, the public really related to that piece so strongly because they, they had this sense of like care mm -hmm. for the horse that they were drawing in. But it's also like, this is what 600 horses look like. Right. You know, this is, you know, it's, it's not that abstraction of a number. And so I feel like that like artists have this kind of really cool tool where we can take some of the abstractions in language and in the written word or even how number um, kind of depersonalizes that and then make it physical, make you like, you have to look, you have to see this thing. Um, and something that's unique with that is that's a tool we can use to do that, but that tool is uh, not as powerful if the audience we're reaching doesn't have the capacity to receive it. So like collectively, the human species is way more uh, uh, cued in to non-verbal languages, shapes in space, symbols, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that's like something we can re rely on as artists, mm -hmm. is like speak in a language that everyone can understand, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, mm. Atika? It's mm -hmm. <laughs> a mean, hard question. I mean, American mythology, um, I, so, you know, in, in terms of visual representation, uh, if you come to my talk later, I, I'm going to talk about this for like 20 minutes. Oh, great. Um, and show you a bunch of propaganda to remind you what it looks like. Uh, but, you know, we often, we've done it over and over and over and over again, and we're, and we're in the age of doing it right now, right? Like Halloween is in two days. People are going to dress up like Native people for Halloween. In the fall, um, there's still schools that are going to encourage children to, to dress up like pilgrims and Indians. Uh, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving, which is not the story of, when, of what happened with Wampanoag people and Chief Massasoit, but rather a, you know, this entirely fabricated story that includes a turkey and like pilgrims and Indians getting along as though that actually happened. Um, the, you know, we do it with Christopher Columbus Day in, in some places, which is now known as Indigenous Peoples Day. We celebrate President's Day and early presidents that slaughtered Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. uh, we do it at the 4th of July when we, set, when we don't acknowledge that it causes, it, like the Declaration of Independence causes, calls us vicious Indian savages. Um, merciless. Merciless Indian savages. Without yeah. Mercy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I don't so hate it. it's, it's like <laughs> over and over and over again, we're, we're telling narratives that support American mythology in, in rhetoric and visual propaganda to canonize or celebrate notions of pioneering mm -hmm. or westward expansion or manifest destiny. Um, you know, there's statues erected to Andrew Jackson and to the first pioneers of a town, which doesn't say like these pioneers displaced indigenous people in Yosemite. There's stickers of national parks or the celebration of John Muir as though he didn't displace Miwok people from Yosemite, right. you know, um, and on and on and on in, in American rhetoric. Mm -hmm. 
over and over and over again, it continues to, so, to celebrate uh, propaganda. Well, and, and so it's not just done, and it's not just done in textbooks, in, in television. It's, it's um, a part of the national consciousness. Yeah. And, and so. It's legal tender we trade with. <laughs> it's legal tenure. It's a part of policy. It's, it's, yeah. it's federal law. And well, it's all and, over our landscape. And it's like a, we're talking about land back, and yeah. then you also just like it's a it's become a fantasy scape, right? And so it's like, how do you combat that? You know, it's like, or do we? Or can you? Yeah. I mean, like, so you know, my work, the work that I did, the the book that I published, is very much about putting together works uh, with real stories from people from all of these different places. Um, you know, and we've developed curriculum to help people think about what does it mean to, to live uh, and benefit in a place like this that actively dispossessed indigenous people of land. Um, what does that mean for us and for you? You know, and, and so we've, like, we bring those hard questions in the curriculum that we've developed, but what does it mean if the, if the institution doesn't actually use the curriculum, and that's what we know to be true. Like, I've sat, I, I, I work on it in Washington State, in Montana, in New Mexico, on developing native curriculum, um, but if you only get seven teachers in the state that are willing to teach it, what does it mean? If you've only had one television show ever written by native people for native people, like Reservation Dogs, and then, you know, three weeks later, Scorsese's film, or throughout three months later, comes out, mm -hmm. which is not written by native people, not for, you know, native people consulted, but it wasn't, written by Native people. Right. And so, you know, you we have like these few steps forward and a thousand steps back. And sometimes I feel really like, yeah, we can do it, you know, and we've made strides. We elected Dub Holland. We have, we do have reservation dogs. We're in spaces like this being asked to come and represent where 50 years ago or 75 years ago, you know, we weren't even allowed on into the space. Right. You know, so yes, we, we've made progress, but it's like the work of generations. Yeah, and I'm I'm a like stupid optimist. That's probably why I inhabit like future space because um, there I can imagine the obsolescence of, of our present, you right. know. But I think that those little steps, like okay, we've got seven teachers in a state that's willing to teach this curriculum. It's not about those seven teachers. It's the 25 students that they have years in a row that are actually going to be sitting in a position to shift and change that knowledge. And I think that's the thing that I, that's always fascinating to me when we talk about um, this indigenous perspective through an American myth is that uh, people suffer the lack of knowing. You know, It's not taught as an American myth to the vast majority of the, of the student population. Right. It's history. It's, yeah, it's taught as though it's a real thing. Right. Yeah. Right. And and it's those moments that crack open that shit that that uh, uh, structure. Right. Um, the, yeah. That, <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Totally. It's that. Mirrored. Uh, open up that structure that actually allow people to see uh, light through its like perforated uh, historical representation, and I think. Like we had said, you can't even have emotion in the historical context. And that emotional scape, that's like the vast majority of, of where uh, uh, knowledge turns from definition into meaning. You know, what does it mean to you? Like, I know, I know what it, I know its definition, I know its shape, its weight, its, you know, density, but what does it mean, you know? 
is one, I think there's a, an emotion that is sometimes allowed, and that is lamenting like the demise of the native person while they're actively murdering us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like, oh, it's so sad we killed them all off, and there's like a, a fake sadness, but they're actively harming us because we're still here. Like I don't know. Yeah. There, there's sometimes there is emotion, but it's like manipulative as hell. And yeah. then like when you're taught it, like when you're you're native and you hear that, and and they're act they're asking you to engage in their emotions when it's oh. it's that myth. I mean, there's just it's just full of manipulation. Yeah. yeah, sympathy without empathy. <sighs> or action. <laughs> or a action aside. <laughs> um, no, that's that's fascinating. Okay, I want to move on to another one, if that's okay with you. Yes, all. please. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's funny. <laughs> yes, please. Thank That's you. Okay. Yes, thank you. <laughs> something, something funny. Something Could funny. you try funny? Yeah. <laughs> the multi-tribal protocols. Uh. Confronting the Native American umbrella term. I mean, we can dive into that a little bit deeper, but I think we've also kind of touched on that a yeah, little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not uh, a monolith, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um... Institutional critique, a generative airing of problematic power structures impact on native people. Oh, isn't this, you guys, you're so lucky you came today. Isn't this so fun? <laughs> I'm sure this is how you wanted to spend your Saturday. Discourse, discourse. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. As, as a moment of total brevity and an opportunity to like shift all of this, these were also words on paper written in a language we were all forced to uh, learn. Uh -huh. Is there anything in this conversation that, that's like in reading the room <laughs> that we want to dive into a little bit deeper or do we get into into this this well, one as well. Well, I'm interested, I am interested in hearing about this in terms of what you did here, what you both did here, yeah. Yeah, and you also did something here too. So like, yeah, I think we do that. have opportunities to dive into it in yeah. relationship to the space. Yeah. Cool, me? Sure, So Please. the exhibition that I was, uh, I was invited to do a commission in, um, uh, in UMAA. And uh, so, Years ago, like in the before times, before the pandemic, uh, I, I was at the Chicago um, Architectural Biennial, and there's this group called Settler Colonial Cities Project, and they did these really fascinating booklets and like kind of um, uh, critiqued the, not only the building that the, the exhibition was in, but they on the giant windows looking overlooking Michigan Avenue in Chicago. It's like you're on Potawatomi, Odawa, and Ojibwe land, because all of that is unceded land. Unceded means that there's not a treaty that, that covers it. That was uh, fill that was pushed into the lake, and so that it's not covered under a treaty, meaning it's not ceded. It wasn't ever it's not covered in a treaty. If it's not covered in a treaty, it's not seated. So, um, so there's a, a lot of uh, knowledge sharing. I just dropped my ring. Um, there's a lot of knowledge sharing in that show. One of the founders of Settler Colonial Cities Project is, is Andrew Hersher, who um, put a little seed in my, my head about Burt Lake Band mm. and how the bio station that is part of this university is on unseated stolen land mm -hmm. and there was this thing that happened in 1900 where this land prospector um, came you know paid some back property taxes and got the sheriff to um, 
kick everyone out one day. Um, they had like an hour to grab all their belongings and he had the sheriff and the men burn all of their houses to the ground. Well, and let's describe who everyone is in so that. So it's like, it's the Sheboyganian people. It's the Odawa and Ojibwe people and they don't have federal recognition to this day even though they're signed on, on treaties. So right now, like a few years after the burnout, the, after everything was clear cut, the land was then acquired by the university and they currently have a bio station on this land. And they are in, not in the mood of, to return that land, as far as I can tell. There's a lot of like happy to know you uh, energy, yeah. but the land needs to be, <laughs> the, you know, everyone here knows. that. Um, but there's, there's not an actual will within this institution to physically like actually return the land and agency and ownership. One of the times Burt Lake was denied federal recognition when they kept reapplying and, and appealing it was that they didn't have a land base. Yeah. Because the university was actively occupying their land. Right, and the, a land base is huge for all of those who don't know uh, to get federal recognition in the United States. Yeah. And who has control of and that who land who denied base. them that federal recognition other it, than the university that we're sitting in? Right, so when, not, not settlers from 500 years ago, 300 years ago, 1870, mm -hmm. not them. 1900 and they still are denied that. So Andrew put that, that story in the back of my head and I'm like, okay, I just let it hang back there. Um, and then when the curator, when uh, Jennifer Fries called me up and said, hey, would you do this commission? And I'm like, I'm not really doing commissions, but I'm, I'm interested because, uh, because of the story that's in the back of my mind. And, um, and my, in Grand Portage, Isle Royal, that's in Lake Superior, is part of Michigan. It doesn't make any sense uh, because of the proximity. It doesn't it's not right? But um, and now there's a national park there. But so like, like Michigan also is on on my ancestral homeland as well. So I was kind of interested in that dispossession and um, but then that that story of Burt Lake. I was like, I, I'm interested if I can work with Settler Colonial Cities Project. I had learned that Kyle White had just um, become faculty here. I was kind of stalking Ann Arbor a little bit, and I'm mm -hmm. like, all right, I guess I'm in. But um, so then there was a lot of requirements put on the museum and on um, Lisa and, and Jen to really foster those relationships, and they're keeping it up. Yeah. And that I can't, I, I can't believe that that is happening. That hasn't happened in any other space that I've worked with. Um, so that's, that's a good thing, but the university itself is, is occupying a space that they should not be occupying. That, that is, it is a consistent, continual, um, and they're future planning in that space. Like the, the settlers are future planning in the bio station and it's not including necessarily returning the entire thing. And that, it, it, that's a problem. You know, a few, a few years back, John Potosky, who is, uh, he was a, a a grad student from, um, uh, not Little Traverse, from Grand, Grand Traverse Band, he is a law student here. He um, had a, a list of things that he needed the university to do, and they agreed to it, and one was to make a monument to, to, to memorialize the, the burnout and the university's uh, complacency in it. And so when I talked to him in the early planning, I was like, you know, you were, you were one of the people that made the, the school aware of this. And he said, whatever you do, because they agreed to that, whatever you do, don't have your work take the place of what they need to do. 
they're mm. going to use your exhibition mm. to be like, see, we did that check, we did that thing that we promised, you know, Petoskey in this in, in this agreement. He's like, they're going to use your thing. You're going to be doing the work for them, the work they need to be doing. And um, and so I kept that in mind. And so usually when I get asked about this project, I, I keep saying that. Yeah. Well, John said, don't don't let this take the place of the real work that needs to happen. I'm not doing the, the hard work on behalf of the, the museum through, through my, my work. No, it's interesting. And then the museum, uh, you know, once again, going back to institutions, like, there are so many silos of power within the institution. So what is the silo that actually could affect that sort of change and that sort of return? You know, I'm even thinking about, you know, if it is a biostation, this must be a an ecology place or something within the within the biological sciences. I was hoping it was a biodome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> so there's like so there's this like there's this land on the on the lake, that was traditionally, who's the Sheboyganing, so Ottawa Ojibwe Anishinaabe folks, and now it has it's a bunch unseated. of cabins. It's unseated. It's it a park. It's, a, it, it's yeah. It's it's like the students can stay in the cabins, and it, it looks and it like belongs camp. to this university. Yeah, I see. And it's tip of the, it's up and tip of the mitt. I'm learning. Tip I'm now mitt. pandering. You guys all know the map. It's, <laughs> This hand. <laughs> Can you show where Burt Lake is on your hand? <laughs> I'm dyslexic, guys. <laughs> well, it's also on video, so it's backwards once again. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, do you have? Do you want to dive into that? I know we're closing in on the end of our of our conversation, and maybe it feeds into the audience's opportunity to engage with us, but. Would you like to speak upon the uh, the intersection of our work and institutions, <laughs> or do you want to wait for your next talk? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just say, you know, I find it um, I find it incredibly challenging as an individual artist to work with large institutions like this, um, mostly because I don't have the manpower to do it. Mm. You know, they have an, these really big uh, lawyers, and and um, you know my my attorney charges me five hundred dollars an hour, and so every time I have to negotiate a contract, with when they send me you know at any institution I have to do work with, you know we have to negotiate a big contract, and it costs me like two thousand dollars, you know <laughs> every time I have to negotiate a contract, Oof. and and so. Part of why my speaking fee has to be so high, why it's so expensive to do work with people like this, what it, and it feels, you know, it feels, in a lot of ways, like it's almost impossible for, you know, unless you are making, like fifty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars a commission, just the the cost to do the work in the first place, um, is very is very challenging. And I and I think what happens instead, and what I did when I was younger, is I just signed the contract, and then later on, really felt like like that was a mistake, mm. you know, because then later on they use your work and they sell it or they put it on a bag or they, they should, you know. I mean, how many times has that happened to me where, you know, you think you're just showing a piece of artwork but really you transferred your intellectual property without knowing it. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and in my case, you know, the things that happened here at this institution, you know, for the show that I was supposed to do that never happened, um, you know, that was also a catastrophe. 
and I didn't have any power and was told very specifically, well, you can, you can contact the legal department, but we're, we're, you, know, you probably don't want to go to court with us. And so, you know, in my experience, um, <laughs> you know, it's really hard to be an individual Native artist without, like, the power structure behind me to, um, to be invited to these places and, and to simultaneously feel tokenized, marginalized, um, you know, and also like celebrated, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, and it feels very awkward and uncomfortable, honestly. Um, you know, and then the reason I do, however, come to these places because I get to meet kids like you. Yep. And I love that. I love that. It's I love, somehow worth it. It's yeah. totally, you, you know, you make it totally worth it. Because you, because yes. you, you know, <laughs> you're the school. <laughs> <laughs> Can you come over? <laughs> you know, but the, honestly, like, because, because, no, seriously. <laughs> because, you know, there's also the fact that there are Native students that are in spaces like this where they do not have their own place on campus when they should, when there is not visible representation for Native people on campus in places like this, and there should be, you know, and so we say and you know, Dr. Amanda Ticini talks about it in her book, Systemic Monsters. We, we send our Native students off to universities and colleges, and we know that they have to be warriors to survive to, and to make it through. Because when they get there, they're up against systemic monsters like settler colonialism, institution, racism, erasure. You know, and, and they have to navigate all of those different things um, to survive. Oh, and. and there's something else. <laughs> when you go to college and you try to come home. Oh, God. Right. Home is like, oh. Oh, really? You think you're smart now? Yeah. When, when <laughs> left and come back, somehow going to save us. Like, oh, now you want to be on oh, tribal council? Right. No. <laughs> but, but, you know. But that's real. But just like acknowledging, real. like, so acknowledging You don't that. get to go home is all I'm saying. <laughs> you, you can. And you you can don't listen to him you can you can <laughs> no but I'm just saying like that the the point is is like in these institutions we know that that we're asking our native students you know like Dr Brian Brayboy says you know we're not saying like what's wrong with the institution instead the institution says why what's wrong with the native students why aren't they staying you know and and so you know i like to say in these in these conversations about you know institutional power and what it's like to be an individual artist and what it's like to be a student in these large institutions is that the question is is always like what kind of work does the institution have to do to be the kind of place where our kids can thrive and stay and grow and feel safe or where a person like me can come and do work and feel safe and, um, and you know, we're not there yet. There's still work to be done. <laughs> uh, I suppose with that, I would love to open up the opportunity for uh, all you folks in the audience to uh, hop on a microphone over there so we make sure that your question finds its way into the audio components um, for, for the podcast overall. But uh, this is the opportunity to kind of back and forth a little bit and talk with you. Please come to the mic if you can. Yes. And that will be the order in which they are answered. <laughs> I love how you fill space. Like, <laughs> that's lovely. What? 
I'm a, I'm a sonic professional now. Uh, good afternoon and thank you. Um, I was listening to what you were saying about having to explain everything to your publisher, your copy editor, your agent, and it just reminds me of some of my experience where I go places and I always have to explain who I am. They're like, well, why are you here? How did you get into college? How did you get this career? It's like everything I do, I have to explain my existence. Mm -hmm. I can't just be a person, I have to be a black person. Uh -huh. I can't just be a black person, I have to be a black woman. Mm -hmm. And I'm always having to explain, even if I'm going to the park just to walk my dog or something. Oh, a black person in a park in Ann Arbor, explain yourself, why are you here? <laughs> and why do you have a schnauzer? Right, you know, <laughs> it's, it's exhausting and yeah. people don't understand and sometimes I just go home and shut the door and turn off the lights. It's like, oh, you read? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, like everything I do, I have to explain and then people are like, well, how was it growing up in the ghetto? <laughs> I didn't grow up in the ghetto. I mean, the assumptions and always having to explain my life where other people, they just exist, but I always have to explain something. So thank you. Yes. Yeah, thank mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. I, on that note, you know, I think there's no better insult than somebody saying to me, you're so loquacious. I'm like, mm. Oh, I get articulate. Articulate. <laughs> I'm like, I'm 44 years old. <laughs> um, my name's uh, Cassandra Thibodeau, and I'm a tribal member of the Sioux St. Marie, Michigan uh, tribe of Chippewas. And I just want to say, a year ago, um, I was traveling back from Sioux St. Marie, going to Texas, and I stopped in. And I went and I saw, Andrea, uh, Andrea I saw your exhibit. And when I saw uh, you are on Anishinaabe land, I was just so overwhelmed. And my mom was in the truck waiting. And I went out and got her. And I said, you've got to see this. Oh. This was so touching. And she said, I guess you're going to school here. And it made me feel like I, it just was such a, I've never experienced that going into a museum. So I spoke with the curator here. I said, can we just keep this sign? And she was like, well, it's really with your exhibit. And I was asking how long your exhibit was. But I just wish I knew how to keep that sign. It just meant so much. Thank you. Miigwech. Chi miigwech. Was it the banner on the museum that I pulled down for my piece? <laughs> Uh, uh, uh. So basically, it's Chinupa's fault. <laughs> that I just made white? <laughs> Way Wait, to did go. you erase me? <laughs> Way to go, dog. Way to go. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's in the museum. It's, it's fine. And, and I think that there is talks about um, a very visible Iran Anishinaabe land. On campus, I'm sure the the museum is is definitely open to to that. That's been conversations within the museum that I am aware of, and I think maybe the text went out last night that the show might be up for another year. But you know that'll give us a little bit more time. Let's with just breaking say news. so. Let's just say it's yeah. yeah. For the rest of time. <laughs> <laughs>
The, but since it'll be up for an extra year, I'm going to need double payment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to carve it in stone on the facade of the building. <laughs> the museum said so. But thank you so much. I think that's such a, a cool comment. I didn't mean to be recruiting for the school. <laughs> but and, and hopefully, hopefully the, I, I learned about this tuition waiver thing. Um, I always, uh, even when you were talking earlier about like educational you know, systems come, coming home from from college and almost getting the lateral violence of like, okay, college guy, college man, oh, you're all smart now. Um, I, my friend Yvonne Tiger and I were talking about this, about, you know, like, you paid for my hire, you, like the tribe paid for my college. And then um, she was like, yeah, I call that, you you broke it, you buy it. <laughs> like, you, you, you sent me to college, and broke it, you bought it. What do you want to do <laughs> here now? Oh, we, we, should, we should work towards a, a housing development plan on the reservation for students who return. Yeah. 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 We're yours now. You, yeah. Yeah. You totally. sent us there. Totally. <laughs> no, that's 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 really that's really something. Uh -oh. yes. Hi. <laughs> um, I'm Ginger Donnell, the producer of Broken Boxes, and um, just to end the the evening, I thought it would or the afternoon. I just want to say thank you all. You know, I know you all hadn't been necessarily in direct community before this, and I hope that after this you all can um, continue. Well, I know Andrea and Matika hadn't quite met in person yet before, so I hope you all can continue friendship after this. But the way I like to end my podcast is kind of like uh, tips and tricks or like what do you put in your toolkit to like survive the art world to survive making it as an artist. And I know you guys have provided a lot of tangible um, tips, tricks, um, tools already, but thinking about the audience here being uh, students, what's maybe go around and one thing that you each can offer um, of what has been a survival um, aspect for you all. And then we'll end. And thank you. I, I've, I've done a couple of these, so I would like to extend it to you guys to really take the time and dive into that. Uh, <laughs> my, my tip is always the same. A aim low and give it everything you got. <laughs> <laughs> it could mean so many things. <laughs> it works every time. <laughs> and if it doesn't, you're still just aiming low. <laughs> you'll accomplish it. And you'll celebrate what you've accomplished. Oh, God. I need something anecdotal like that. I yeah. don't have, yeah. I don't really, so right now I feel like there's a, I don't have anything fun quick like that, but there's, there's a hunger right now in institutions for indigeneity and for Native folks. And so there is a bunch of Wendigos out there, and they're hungry for you. So one of the things I'm starting to learn in my ripe old age of 44 is refusal. It's my new favorite thing. It's like they're hungry for you, and you can say no. And it, that, that hunger is not going to go away, and sometimes you get a better thing. So. Good one. <laughs> Just say no. <laughs> Just say no. <laughs> oh.
Uh. I'm like, say yes to everything. <laughs> to drugs. <laughs> Just say no. <laughs> like, Learn the yes. power of yes, like Shonda Rhimes says. Yeah, this is the complexity of indigenous cultures. <laughs> Vast contradictions. <laughs> well, now I can't go with the power of yes. <laughs> All these people are here, just say no, underachieve. The great toolkits, I'm into it. Be contrary, please. Um, you know, um, I, I, I think for me, like my best advice um, is, you know, I think as a practicing artist is to keep practicing. Mm. Um, I think like if you're a photographer like me, you know, take pictures every day. Um, if you're a filmmaker, work, work, you know, like write, write, film, you know, like do the do the work over and over and over again. Keep doing the work, keep doing the work, and there's so many no's. For me, there were so many no's, you know, along the way, and so I just kept doing the work, and and I do believe that if you have. Um, the courage to dream of an otherwise that and you have the courage to say it out loud that the entire world will in fact conspire to help you mm. and so that has been my experience you know that I've been like this crazy lady that lives in a van that's like I want to go visit all these tribes and people helped me along the way told me their stories let me photograph them, collaborated with me, fed me, and sent me off in a good way. Mm. And then along the way, I met all these very fancy people, you know, like publishers and people that work, you know, like for the National Education Association, people that could like actually take the things that I wanted to do and make them, make them real, like distri distribute, publish, you know. But it was really because I had the courage to say out loud, like, this, this is what I'm hoping to do. Can you help me? And... Um, and you know, I've been humbled over and over and over again in Indian country, thinking I know something and then being reminded that I know very little. And so I also think staying humble in that way and like not being afraid of aunties too much, you know. And you know, just keep just keep working, just keep doing the work and I think I think it works out. And um, and if it doesn't, something else does. And so, you know, be courageous, young warriors. <laughs> well, I want to thank you both so very much. Uh, you've been so generous in this conversation. It is nice to actually dive in deeper and, and engage and hear where you're at in your mind uh, and what you're thinking and, and how that collectively pushes the the edge of what we've experienced up until this moment. Perhaps it's a wedge for you all to uh, lean against and, and uh, shifts the, w the world that you're gonna navigate into and you're gonna also have to do that for generations. I have children, we have children, we collectively have children. <laughs> What's good for us is good for all of us, you know? Um, so thank you very much mm -hmm. and I would like to say thank you. This has been our public live <laughs> Broken Boxes podcast. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh, there they go.
There's a line at the store. I'm indigenous. Oh, creator, it's a bore. I'm indigenous. I hear the clerk break a snore. I'm indigenous. I could sleep on the floor. I'm indigenous. I hear your whispers behind my back, looking at me like I'm a snack. I'm indigenous. I won't steal your stuff, stay away. Stealing continents that you weigh. I'm indigenous. The police on native lands. I'm indigenous. Natives go take a stand. I'm indigenous. Make a fist, raise your hand. I'm indigenous. Like a fire, make demands. I'm indigenous. We are villainous in the eyes of the malicious We create dissonance in the colonial instruments My people had meteorite spears You better go tell your peers We manifest your tears because we're the true pioneers Pipelines and coal mines, your carbines and deadlines Send them on the boat from the coastlines Pack some water in a backpack Put a mask on and ransack Gather your people like a wolf pack Fight for that lamb back there's a line at the store. I'm indigenous. Oh, creator, it's a bore. I'm indigenous. I hear the clerk break a snore. I'm indigenous. I could sleep on the floor. I'm indigenous.